Hello and welcome to the PTP Podcast. This week features a lesson by Brother Neil Pollard, presented as the Wednesday night keynote in 2017. Neil examines 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, to draw out four easy-to-understand principles that we can use to maintain our focus. The Christian life is a long-distance marathon that is filled with distractions, and it is so easy to lose sight of the goal. Neil uses this text to highlight a plan provided by the Apostle Paul to help Christians keep their focus towards heaven. Let's listen. It has been a wonderful treat to be here at Polishing the Pulpit this week. We leave full. We're so grateful for all the efforts that go into this. And in the evenings, we are providing at the end of the lesson an opportunity for anyone who may feel the need to respond to the invitation. We're very grateful for that expedient way for us to uh, react to the preaching of the Word of God, perhaps in the culmination of several things that have been said throughout the course of this week. It has been weighing on your heart and you feel the need to respond to the gospel call. It's possible that there are those here tonight who have never rendered obedience to the gospel. You understand the great grace of our Lord. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You desire to change your life, your heart that leads into a change of life. Repent and turn. You desire to confess the sweet name of our Lord and to make Him your Lord by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We have the way to help you with that if that's a need that you have tonight. We also recognize that there may be a conviction to want to rededicate your life or to be restored if there's sin in your life that you want to to put behind you and to serve God more faithfully. We want to give you that opportunity as well. So Adam's going to lead us in a song of invitation at the conclusion of this lesson that will afford you that opportunity. The Romans were playing games in the times of the New Testament. It's interesting that you can look through the archaeological evidence and through documentation and find that they were playing board games. They were playing dice, chess and checkers and tic-tac-toe and backgammon, or at least some variation of that. But they were also very physically active. It was very common in the Roman Empire to find folks competitively swimming or horseback riding. Engaging in running or wrestling or boxing. And they were playing ball games. They had their versions of handball and field hockey and soccer. They played catch games and dodgeball and the spherisa and the palestra, their ball courts. Did you know that in the time of the Old Testament that the Egyptians were demonstrating their athletic prowess? In cave 17 of Beni Hassan, there is a mural of two girls who are facing one another and they're expertly juggling six balls together. And it has been discovered that they played an ancient game of field hockey in which they used palm branches for their sticks. And they had a a ball in field hockey that was a papyrus center that had either cloth or or cowhide uh, to cover it. Athletics have been a part of civilization and society for thousands of years. You can envision, if you will, some ancient version of college football game day where folks get together and they tailgate for their favorite athletes and teams. 
Even in Scripture, a ball is mentioned on an occasion. In Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 18, in prophetic words, God says, I will turn and I will throw you violently as a ball into a large country. And so even though this doesn't sound like a very joyous occasion, it is an indication that Isaiah's readers would have been familiar with ball games. But the one who we associate the most with athletic analogies is the Apostle Paul. Fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. He says, Do you not know that an athlete who competes must compete according to the rules? 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. But he reserves his greatest analogy, the most comprehensive one for the church at Corinth. Now, as the Apostle Paul in context is speaking, he is talking about the right that he has as an apostle and as a preacher to do certain things. He has the right to eat and he has the right to drink. He has the right to have a believing wife. And he has a right to be paid for preaching the gospel. But he has an intense focus on saving as many souls as possible. And so he is seeking to accommodate himself to as many groups of people as he can while staying within the will and within the word of Jesus. Now, as the Apostle Paul speaks of such intensity and striving to do what he has come to do, to preach, to be a slave to all, though he's free, he speaks of an utter focus that one ought to have. He doesn't use the phrase, but he gives us the equivalent idea. In other words, he does not say, keep your eye on the ball. And yet, as you look at his words, you understand that such an analogy could be very easily made. The Apostle Paul, in his focus, wants to subjugate his prerogatives to his profound purpose as a preacher of the gospel. Every sport that has one would encourage you to do this, to keep your eye on the ball. If you try to catch it or kick it or throw it and you don't look at it, you're probably going to be in serious trouble. For example, they say that a Major League Baseball player has four tenths of a second to be able to judge whether a ball that's thrown is a ball or strike, what speed it is going, what kind of pitch that it is to finish his stride, to get his foot down and to make contact with the ball with his bat. To make contact, much less to hit a home run, requires utter focus to keep one's eye on the ball. Do you not know that those who run in a race run all but only one wins? So run that you may win. Do you not know that an athlete who competes in the game exercises self-control in all things and they do this to receive a perishable crown, but we have an imperishable one. I so run, not as one who is without aim. I so box, not as one who is beating the air, but I discipline myself, my body, and I bring it under control, lest that when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Paul is saying, in essence, keep your eye on the ball. As we have made our way through a wonderful week, we realize, as Jeff said in such a humorous and great way a moment ago, that it's about time for us to be turned loose and to go back, to leave this oasis in the desert of this world, to go back into the world in which we live apart from here. It's an admonition 
that's an encouragement that I think all of us need as we leave the mountaintop. Keep your eye on the ball. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. I'd like us to look at four reasons why we need to keep our eyes on the ball. And along the way, we're going to point out a strategy that the Apostle Paul gives us on each of these to help us to keep our eye on the ball. Will you notice those with me in the time that we have remaining? First of all, keep your eye on the ball because you are in it to win it. That's verse 24. Now, the strategy that the Apostle Paul encourages us from the very beginning is if you understand that you're in it to win it, you need to be competitive. There's the strategy. Let me ask you tonight, are you competitive? Is there somebody competitive in your life? There is somebody in my life who has a a love-hate relationship with games, especially board games and dice games and card games. If she is winning, she loves it. If she's losing, she hates it. And in her most honest moment, she'll tell you, yes, I am very competitive. But aren't we all? Isn't there a sense in which we have this fire within us? Especially is it true that this ought to exist in us spiritually? We have got to have the competitive fire that causes us not to race against somebody else, but to race against the things that would keep us from obtaining the prize. I find it very interesting that the Apostle Paul, in talking about this race that we're in, talks about a race that we are more familiar with, that you have a race with several competitors. But in all of that exercise, only one of them can win. But he says our race is not that way. We are in a race that all of us can win if we finish. And so we have the encouragement of Scripture for us not to give up, but to keep on running and to help each other. Wherefore, seeing that you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself, lest you should be weary and faint in your mind. Notice the collective run. Let us run the race that is set before us. As we're running, we're helping, we're encouraging others so that we can all make it to the end. I'm grateful that VidAngel has come back. It's allowed me to watch a, a, a war miniseries called Band of Brothers. And as that begins in that first episode, you find Lieutenant Sobel, who is being uh, sadistic and is training Easy Company more than he's training the other ones, so much harder. And uh, as the result of this, one of his ploys to try to break down the men and rebuild him is to take them on a run up a mountain that was there at Camp Tacoa in North Georgia, just south of us. And the length of that run was three miles up and three miles back. And whether because of him or in spite of him, it seems to bring the men closer together as they encourage each other to make that run up that mountain. In fact, the mountain became their motto. On the day that they become paratroopers and have reached this important goal, the colonel, Colonel Sink, comes in and he shouts the motto, Curahi. It was a reminder that they had somebody that they were relying on and they were running together. When we think about the race that we are in, 
Aren't we thankful? Doesn't polishing the pulpit reaffirm our faith to know that there are so many others who share our faith and who are seeking the same thing, who are dedicated to New Testament Christianity? The undenominational nature of the church is striving to be what God and His Word says that we are supposed to be. What a resource that it is. We yearn for the encouragement that we get from one another. God has given us some great assets. In your life, you probably have a godly mate, and I hope you do, to help encourage you. And you have, I hope, a strong church family, or at least those in it that you can lean on to help you. Godly parents, godly children. You know, despite those resources that God wants us to take advantage of, nobody can run for you. Nobody can have focus and determination for you. So the Apostle Paul is appealing to these brethren and he's encouraging them, each of them, to run. Make sure that you finish. As those around you are competing and you're helping them realize that there is nobody who can formulate your prayer life or set your Bible study habits for you. There's nobody who can fight the devil and the desires of the flesh for you. James chapter 1 and verse 13. There is nobody who can deny self, take up the cross and follow Christ for you. Luke chapter 9 verse 23 through 26. There has got to be a competitive fire within that says I'm not going to stop until I make it there. I'm going to keep my eye on the ball. I started running in 1998 in Mechanicsville, Virginia, when Kathy was pregnant with uh, Carl. It was for the reason that most of us do these kinds of things. I'm always fighting the battle of the bulge. And so we had a running buddy, I did, named Joe Ketchum, and I would meet him down at the high school track uh, every time that we ran. Let me tell you, it was an unpleasant task at first, but I knew that he was there waiting for me, and it encouraged me to go. And when I went out there, we would try to encourage one another, whatever the weather conditions were. And in the process of time, in running and continuing to run, I became one of those strange people that really actually likes to run. And today, mostly, I'm running by myself. But I had somebody to help me to get started. Both of these concepts are so important. We need each other, but there needs to be a fire within Fernando Arenado fled Cuba with his family when he was a little boy and he came to America. He always worked hard and he found himself always resisting a handout and and he grew up with this kind of ethic and he shared it with his three sons on the sandlots of California as they played baseball. He's got a 26-year-old son who, if he does something better than field defensively, is swing a bat. Nolan Arenado is one of the phenoms of the game. And Nolan Arenado is where he is today, Fernando says, because of this reason. When he was trying to make the the junior national team, he was cut. He was one of the last ones cut as a high school freshman. And this burned him up so bad that Fernando said from that moment to now, he has had a burning drive to not let anything keep him from playing ball. This fire was started by a father but carried on by himself. And I say all that to say this. You have had your fire stoked this week by others, those around you. And as you go into perhaps some very lonely situations, you have got to keep that competitive fire going. Keep on running. Keep your eye on the ball. 
because you're in it to win it. We're going to take a short break here to remind you about our upcoming Great Smoky Mountain Marriage Retreat. Brother Neil and his wife Kathy will be two of our speakers this year. This is a retreat for married couples of all stages of life, and it is held at the LeConte Center in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Tuition is $100 per couple, and the event lasts for three days. You can learn more at SmokyMountainMarriage.com. As we begin the holiday season, we pray that you and your family will have happy and safe travels. If you want to hear more content like this while you are driving, check out PTP365. We have thousands of lessons available for download on hundreds of topics, so you can study with us as you travel. You can learn more at PolishingThePulpit.com. We also wanted to remind you that Polishing the Pulpit 2019 will be August 16-22 through 22 at the Sevierville Convention Center in Sevierville, Tennessee. You can learn more at PolishingThePulpit.com. And now, back to Neil. But then second, I would encourage you to keep your eye on the ball because you are not after an ordinary prize. And the strategy that we would look at here is to be self-controlled. That's what Paul would emphasize in verse 25. If you are a sports fan, there are so many different sports that have some kind of award or trophy. There's the Stanley Cup. There's the World Cup. There's the Lombardi Trophy, there's the Commissioner's Trophy, the O'Brien Trophy, and even the Green Jacket. And it's a great honor to win that in in any sport. And and while it may look new and shiny for a long time, eventually it will fade and, and it will begin to crumble even if enough time goes by. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25 appeals to this perishable wreath. It would have been um, made of garland or leaves or it would have been metal that was shaped to be like that. But if you ever saw somebody wearing it, they were somebody. It was a status of greatness and honor. And so as they wore that, they, if, you, if Paul's listeners were hearing Paul say this or if they were reading the letter, they would have imagined something like a, an Olympic gold medal or a World Series ring. It was a great honor, nothing ordinary. Members of the body of Christ have won national or won championships in different sports. What I understand, Fred McGriff has won a, a, a championship in baseball. Bill Bates has won it in football. David Robinson has won it in basketball. Bill Elliott in NASCAR. And Scott Hamilton has won Olympic gold medals. And I don't know how their Christian race is going to end. But however much they are honored in that way, it cannot compare with what God says is awaiting for us, the very prize that the Apostle Paul is talking about in our context tonight. And they cannot barter those great earthly honors for the honor that Paul is speaking of here. So there's an encouragement that is given to make sure you recognize that the prize that we are after is nothing ordinary whatsoever. I find something very interesting at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 50 where the Apostle Paul says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither shall the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall, not, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, where the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable shall must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable shall put on in, the imperishable, and when this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, O death, where is your, or rather death is swallowed up in victory. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 54. It's interesting that in our text, Paul ties the imperishable wreath to the imperishable body in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I love the way that he ends the context in talking about the resurrection. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know another way he might have said that? Keep your eye on the ball. You have a prize that's extraordinary. And so you need to make sure that you recognize the greatness of it. And the way that you do that, Paul says, is you exercise self-control. If that's what they do to receive the perishable crown, how much more do we need to do that? What a remarkable concept. Self-control means to, to restrain the impulses, the desires and the feelings of the flesh Impulses, desires, and feelings are not wrong, but they cannot go about unrestrained. So you think about this. Adam and Eve sinned in paradise. Hophni and Phinehas sinned at the door of the tabernacle. Ananias and Sapphira sinned at church. And Judas sinned after walking three and a half years in close communion with Jesus. Yet Joseph did not sin, even though he was all alone in a place so far away from home. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no to sin in the face of the most powerful man on the earth. Stephen said no to sin, even though it cost him his life. Jesus perfectly said no to sin. When you contemplate, what's the difference? It's the difference between self-control and self-indulgence. When we come to understand what's at stake here, we realize how important it is for us not to let anything stand in the way of our running in such a way to win and keeping our eye on the ball. But then third, as we look at our text, I want us to notice something else. You need to keep your eye on the ball because you can lose focus. I see that in verse 26. Now tell me if I'm the only one that feels this way, but doesn't it feel like that we can have laser-like focus when we're here together? Man, I feel like in a spiritual sense that I can take on a 100-mile-an-hour fastball right here with the folks at PTP. But when I'm away from here, I can be way out in front on a hanging curveball. There's, there's a bliss that comes in this wonderful time together. But then we're going to leave from here. We're going to go back to relationship problems. We're going to go back to financial crises, problems with our kids, problems with our marriage, problems with our health. Focus can be a problem. So the Apostle Paul tells us we need to make sure that we don't lose our focus. And the strategy to help us with that is to make sure that we are a people who can be purposeful. It's so easy for us to lose sight on what our purpose is here. So easy for us to get caught up in the things of this earth, those, those matters that we carry around with us, not realizing that those are not going to matter in eternity. Peter encourages that in his second letter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, when he says to us that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and all the works therein shall be burned up. And seeing that all these things are going to be dissolved, what manners of persons ought you to be in all holiness and godliness? 
looking unto the coming of the hastening of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to the promise of God, look for new heavens and new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Seeing that you look then for these things, make sure that you are found in him in peace and without spot and blameless. An account that the long-suffering of our God is salvation. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 15. Most of the things that most of the people are so obsessed about are going to be burned in the end. And so we keep our focus. That's what this is about every year. It's helping us to rededicate our focus. What a joy it is. And, And the encouragement is as we leave, let's keep our focus. It's easy to lose focus. When I come here, I renew my dedication. And I realize I've got to overcome my fear. I need to reach out to the people in my sphere of influence and say, look, there's a great day coming. And God loves us so much that he wants us to be ready for it. I want to keep my focus on being the best preacher. You want to keep your focus on being the best elder, the best deacon, the best member that you can be. I want to keep our focus on helping our young people to grow up to be the most godly adults that they can be. We want to keep our focus on those who are lost, or who are poor and who are needy, who need to see the face of Jesus as they look at us. It's possible for churches to lose their focus. It's possible for us as individual Christians to lose our focus. Hebrews writer says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. If all of my resources are directed inward in how to take care of me and I'm not reaching out to the lost, and I may have lost my focus. If there's a message that I'm presenting other than the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, I need to watch my message and make sure that I'm keeping focus. I need to make sure that my focus is where it needs to be. And the way to do that is to be purposeful. There's one last thing I'd like us to notice from our text. To keep your eye on the ball realize that you can be disqualified. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. And the strategy that the Apostle Paul helps us with is to be disciplined. You know, to me, this is one of the most sobering statements that are made in the New Testament, that one can become disqualified. Here's the Apostle Paul who says that. Aren't you grateful? What a great lesson that was preached earlier, that I can walk about with confident assurance that I can know, that I can know, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, that there's great comfort and security in knowing that I walk in the light, I have fellowship with not only my brothers and sisters in Christ, but with God and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. It's because He is faithful and just. What confidence that should give us, walking around with our head held high, not because of us, but because of the Christ who is in us. Never lose sight of that. But don't gloss over passages like this. I can become disqualified. It reminds me of what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, verse 20 through 22 to some. It's what's said about some of those in the Galatian church and those associated therewith in Galatians 5 and verse 4. It's what's said by the Hebrews writer to some in Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 31, who had abandoned the faith. If the one who is preaching the gospel can be disqualified, then those who are listening to preaching can be disqualified. And so there's an encouragement to be disciplined. 
Since 1968, there have been 137 medals that have been stripped from Olympic winners. And the reasons for that range mostly because of failed drug tests, but also because of cheating and because of a temper tantrum on a podium on one occasion caused them to be disqualified. Paul says, you know what the answer is? Keep your eye on the ball. And what that means is to be disciplined. Our culture preaches for us to be a slave to our flesh. And there's so many ways in which we can indulge our flesh that keep us from looking at what our purpose here is. So the Apostle Paul is saying, don't let that be what drives you. You know, as you think about your Christian life, sometimes I think we miss the point. When we begin to argue about matters like alcohol and tobacco and immodesty and dancing and things like that, we would say along with the Apostle Paul, do you want to go to heaven more than anything? If so, be disciplined as you keep your eye on the ball. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul talks about the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But here the Apostle Paul is speaking in first person. He says, when I have preached to others, I realize that I might be disqualified. Paul doesn't tell us what it is exactly that he is wrestling with in his flesh. But he was. And so I look at him and I say, if that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with, I'm not careful, I'm dealing with that too. As I walk away and go into my spiritual life day by day, I need to keep my eye on the ball. I need to make sure that I understand that as I walk in the light of Jesus Christ and experience His great grace, that I continue to live that way so that I'm not disqualified. It's my joy to get to teach uh, to direct the Denver Future Preachers Training Camp. Been doing it since 2007. And we have young men ages 13 to 18 come from all over the country. They come on the second Sunday in June and leave on the third Sunday. And on Saturday, before we turn them loose, we always go down and watch a Colorado Rockies baseball game. That's exactly what we were doing in 2009. We were all down there. We always go early because we go for batting practice, hoping that we'll catch some home run balls. It's not uncommon. So I was out in the left field bleachers, and I was visiting with one of our counselors. I got engrossed in the conversation, and all of a sudden I heard several of the campers yelling my name. I don't know why, but instinctively, instead of turning toward their voice, I looked up. And screeching toward me, was a Delwyn Young home run ball feet from my body. I had no time to do anything but to flex my chest and that ball hit me right here and bounced right into my counselor's hand. <laughs> it turned purple and I bore the stitches for a couple of days, but I realized that was a very close call. Another 12, 18 inches and it would have rearranged my face. A couple of inches over, square on the heart. I broke the golden rule of batting practice, didn't I? I wasn't watching. The Apostle Paul is telling us about an extraordinary contest that we're in. I love the analogy that was given in this assignment. Keep your eye on the ball. Why? Because you're in it to win it. Be competitive. 
You're, you're not, you're, what you're competing against is all those things that would take your eye off of the ball, if you will. Keep your eye on the ball. Because what we're looking for is an extraordinary prize. It's eternal life. Heaven's at stake. Don't let any attitudes, don't let any relationships keep you from being self-controlled. Keep your eye on the ball because you can lose focus. It happens to the best of us. It happens to all of us at times throughout life. And the answer to that is be purposeful. Don't lose sight of your purpose. We encourage it. We try to live it. Keep your eye on the ball because you can be disqualified. The way to offset that is to be disciplined, as Paul says here. Back in what they call the dead ball era, the way that they would condition a baseball is that, and they were very rare to enter a game, maybe won a game. They would toss a new baseball onto the mound, and the pitcher would kind of sidestep it. And the ball would roll around the infield. And each of the fielders would rub it in the dirt. He would be chewing invariably either licorice or tobacco, and so they'd put licorice juice and tobacco juice on those baseballs. And by the time they worked that thing over, they scuffed it, they sandpapered it, and did what they did to it, and it got back to the pitcher. It was this earth-colored ball that was harder and harder to see as the game went on. On August 16, 1920, Ray Chapman stood in at the plate. And the eyewitnesses said it was about 5 p.m. It was getting to be about twilight, it was, uh, and it was the top of the fifth when Chapman stood in against a submarine, hot-headed New York Yankees pitcher named Carl Mays. And eyewitnesses say that he never moved. They heard the sound, and Chapman collapsed. He was able to get up and walk off the field, but he died 12 hours later in a New York City hospital. Chapman could not keep his eye on the ball. He couldn't see it. Aren't you grateful that Scripture shows us the focus before us and shows us the beauty of the determination of living the Christian life. We can win it, thanks to our Lord and Savior. It could be that someone here tonight needs to respond to heaven's invitation. If that's you and this is your invitation, we would urge you to come right now as together we stand and sing. Thank you for listening. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends and leave us a review on Apple iTunes or Google Play. For more PTP information, visit polishingthepulpit.com or search for Polishing the Pulpit on Facebook.